0: Well, good morning, everybody. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family online in the field. Fun to be together on this chilly Sunday morning. Uh, We are excited to be together for the Rockathon on Saturday, whether virtually or in person. And then again on Christmas Eve, we'll do the in-person on the land, but we'll also have some online options for those who would prefer to worship in that way. Will you join me in thanking some people? You know how sometimes folks say, oh, it was freezing, and they just mean it was cold? Well, our setup team, our musicians, our audiovisual team, and our operations uh, team, these are just folks like you and me, just regular old folks, they got here this morning to get us all set up, and it was freezing. In fact, it was not even freezing yet. Uh, so will you join me in just thanking them for their sort of over and above effort today? We we are grateful to them that we can worship together. Um, yeah, they went over and above today, so we are thankful for for them. Have you ever been reading a book and you get to that place in the book where you just have to stop and flip to the end to make sure it's going to be worth it? that it's all going to turn out all right? Have you ever gotten to that point in the book? The truth is, you and I will also get to those sort of places in our lives. And for many of us, 2020 has been that point in the book. It's the point in the book where we just need to flip to the end and make sure we know it's worth holding on. So this year for Advent, Advent is the weeks leading up to Christmas. This year for Advent, what we're going to do is flip to the back of the book and look at the end of the Bible and make sure that it's all going to be worth it. We're going to flip to the back of the Bible to try to find hope with a capital H. From the earliest days of the Christian faith, the overarching point of Advent, Advent again, the weeks leading up to Christmas, the overarching point of Advent has been that we celebrate Jesus coming to remind us that he's coming again. We celebrate Jesus coming to remind us that he's coming again. And so this Christmas, as with every Christmas, we celebrate Jesus coming. We marvel at the baby in the manger, fully God, fully human. Come to earth on a rescue mission for you and for me. And I hope that as we marvel at that baby, at Jesus coming, we also hear in the back of our minds, and he's coming again. He's coming again. There's an encore that you won't want to miss. In fact, you won't be able to miss. When Jesus came the first time, he came to live and to suffer, to die, never forget this part, to resurrect. And then he ultimately ascended. He returned back to God. At some point in the future, at just the right time, he will come again. The second time, though, he will have a different purpose. His purpose will not be to live and to suffer and to die. you get it. he will have a different purpose. His purpose will be, get ready, Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the life everlasting. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead and to usher in the life everlasting. Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. Merry Christmas! The oldest creed of the church, the Apostles' Creed, would say that Jesus will return to judge the quick and the dead. As a kid growing up at church, we would say that, and I thought, well, I'm not all that fast, so that's great. But then I learned quick was an old word for living. It just meant the living and the dead. Now, some of us get uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus would be a judge. How can the friend of sinners, how can the good shepherd who cares for the sheep, how can Jesus come back to judge the living and the dead? That sounds like a pretty serious career change for Jesus. And yet, when we look at what was said about Jesus when he was a baby, it, all the way back in Luke chapter 2, the prophet Simeon said this about Jesus in Luke chapter 2, verse 34. Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child, Jesus, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be Will be revealed. So what does Jesus what did Jesus do when he came the first time He revealed who people truly were and he continues to reveal who people truly are. how you and I respond to Jesus how we respond to God wrapped in humanity tells us about who we really are. How we respond to Jesus shows who you and I truly are deeper than our facades deeper than our ambitions deeper and even than our guilt who are we really? Who do we, what do we desire most? Jesus revealed and continues to reveal who people truly are. So, what will Jesus do when he comes the second time? He'll do the same thing. He will reveal who people truly are. He's not making a career change, he's going to keep doing the same thing. Noah taught us last week that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a friend of sinners, He is the Good Shepherd who cares for his sheep, and he is the only one qualified to rightly judge every human heart in all of their complexities, in all of my complexities, and all of your complexities. Now, this brings us to Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, all the way to 21.5. This is what Tiffany read for us earlier. Today, I'm going to focus on the first half of the passage. The next two weeks, we're going to focus on the second half of the passage. If you need me to translate that, here it is. Today may not be your favorite Sunday ever, and the next two Sundays are worth coming back for. Revelation is the book of the Bible that people either think about too much or not enough. You can figure out which one you are, but Revelation is the book of the Bible that people often think about too much or not enough. The backstory to Revelation is this it's just that it's a revelation. It's a vision that was given to a guy named John, one of Jesus' earliest disciples, while he was stranded on the prison colony on the island of Patmos. He'd been banished to this island because of his faith in Jesus, and on that island he had an extended vision, an extended revelation about the nature of the world. The vision was given to him by God to share with other Christians as an encouragement to persevere in the midst of suffering to hold on to hope in the midst of suffering, to keep walking on God's path in the midst of suffering. Now, throughout the vision, the forces of evil, which are shown in different ways, the forces of evil lead a rebellion against God. A whole bunch of people start to join into that rebellion. It often looks like the rebellion is going to win. But then comes a lamb, a lamb that was slain. In other words, a lamb that had been killed and was alive again. And gentle and mighty, this lamb is the key to the whole story. The lamb starts beating back the forces of evil. The lamb starts assembling an army. But this army is here to love and to serve the people of the world. This is a countercultural army who's unwilling to keep rebelling against God. So this lamb, the lamb that was slain is, any guesses? Jesus, always a safe guess at church. Even church in a field and online when it's a little cold. The lamb that was slain is an image of Jesus. And when we come to the end of the book, what we find at the end of the revelation, the end of the vision, is that the leader of the rebellion against God, the devil, and all of his false prophets who've lured people away from God, they make one last attempt to destroy God and destroy God's people. And this is the important part. It fails. That's the crucial part. It fails. And so all those, uh, the devil and all his false prophets get thrown into a lake of burning sulfur. Now it's about to get real. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Remember, this is a vision. I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. So the rebellion is over, and now there's this great white throne. Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, and it's a dramatic scene that the sky and the earth that we see all around us starts to go very dim, and there's just a great white throne is all that can be focused on. Have you ever been by a campfire in the woods late at night? And the longer you sit by the fire and the brighter the fire is, the darker and darker the woods seem to get. In fact, if you look and stare at that fire for any period of time, you really can't even see what's out in the woods after a little while. That's kind of the scene that's unfolding here as we flip to the end of the book. The great throne, this radiant, glowing throne, is making the rest of the world around it grow very, very dim like a campfire in the woods. Verse 12, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. So at this point, the important and the not so important, the wealthy and the poor, all of us are standing before the throne. And this is when we realize that Jesus as the judge is the great equalizer. There's no special line for the brilliant, no special line for the accomplished, no special line for the well-to-do. There's even, I'm sorry to say, no special line for pastors. I've looked at all the words just to make sure. No special line. All the people of all the nations, we all stand before the great and the glowing throne. And all these distinctions we thought were so important have now become very dim. Books upon books upon books are opened, and we realize that nothing was truly done in secret. Jesus is omniscient, and we each have our, have our own conscience, and it's all coming out now. Both the good and the bad, it's all coming out now. When you and I hear the word judge, is that a positive or a negative term? Usually it's a negative term. Right? We think of the word judge and condemn as being the same, right? Don't judge me, we say. And what we mean is don't condemn me. Don't look down on me. But that's not what's happening here. Jesus is not the judge who's here to condemn or to look down on. What he's doing is calling us to account for our lives right? Your life, my life, is a gift from God. God gave us this gift, and at the end of time, at the back of the book, he's going to call us to account for our lives, the way that we've lived our lives, both the good and the bad, both the things we've done and the things we've not done. It all comes out in the open. And then towards the end of all this, the, the scriptures is saying Jesus summons for one last book, which is called the book of life. This is like a celebrity appearance in the Bible, this book of life. It's been talked about from even the most ancient of times. Psalm chapter 69, verse 28 says, May they be blotted out of the book of life and not listed with the righteous. The idea being God has the book, the book of life, and it contains the name of people who are righteous. Not self-righteous, righteous, meaning right with God. The names of people who are right with God, in a right relationship with God. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, says this, There will be a time of distress such as has not happened before from the beginning of nations until now. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. At that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame, and everlasting contempt. So this is another vision from Daniel of Daniel in the lion's den fame, and it's hundreds of years before the earthly ministry of Jesus, hundreds of years before the book of Revelation. I know, guys, I'm getting it. Don't don't worry. The roosters want me to keep moving. But Daniel also gets a vision. God also flips to the back of the book for Daniel as well, and what Daniel sees is there's a book who with names listed in it. And then people listed in that book are God's people, those who have become right with God, who have a right relationship with God. Does this sound familiar? Let's continue. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 10, verse 20. He says to his disciples, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus tells his disciples, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven in heaven. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 20. Written in heaven? That's an interesting descriptor. What would they be written in? Like a book? So you see, Jesus is even getting at this same point. And he's saying, don't find your deepest joy in what you accomplish. Don't find your deepest joy in your, even your spiritual achievements. Find your deepest joy in knowing that your name is listed in the book of life. And then one last one. This is Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. The early Christian leader Paul said this, I plead with Yodia, I plead with Syntyche. These are great baby names if you ever need them. I plead with Yodia, I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. In this passage, some early Christians had gotten sideways with each other. That's a very technical theological term. They had gotten sideways with each other. And Paul, an early Christian leader, pleads with them to work it out. Work it out, baby, work it out. And why should they work it out? Because all their names are in the book of life. So even in the hardest of moments in life, The Scripture encourages us, remember the book of life. So you see here at the end of the book, when we turn to the back to these last chapters of Revelation, it's not some random reference that the book of life comes out. There's this long history throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, that there's a book, it contains the names of people who are right with God, who have a right relationship with God. But there's one wrinkle in Revelation, and it's this. In Revelation, the book of life is called the Lamb's book of life. And I think we already established who the Lamb was, didn't we? So in Revelation, it's called the Lamb's book of life. In other words, who holds the pen? Who's writing the book? Who knows the names in the book? Jesus. Jesus is the one writing them. The book of life contains the names of everyone who is right with God. But how do we become right with God? The truth is we are made right with God. We don't earn that status. We don't deserve that status. We receive it as a gift from the Lamb who was slain in our place, who rose with our victory, who makes us right with God out of His grace. We come to trust in Him. We come to trust in the sufficiency of what He's done on our behalf. We trust that He offers us a forgiveness and a purpose and a security that we cannot find anywhere else in creation. We begin to live a different sort of life. We begin to live as a member of the Lamb's countercultural army. And so what I would say to you as a follower of Jesus, or if today or in the future you become a follower of Jesus, in your greatest victories and in the hardest times in life, in your greatest victories and in the hardest times in life, find your deepest joy in these words. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Verse 13. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. As Grace said earlier, this passage of the Bible is often referred to as the final judgment or judgment day, both of which sound like professional wrestling pay-per-views to me. So I wonder... If we might instead refer to it as, at last, justice. At last, justice. Deep in our human hearts, there's a yearning for justice. We see it in our lives, we see it in our society, that justice is a good thing, justice is worth fighting for, but we are also aware that full and final justice rarely happens on earth. But then before the great and glowing throne, there is at last justice, full and final justice. And virtue that is silent is seen and known, and vice that is bold is no longer so impressive. In the end, nobody gets away with murder, and all wrongful convictions are overturned. Jesus is omniscient. We each have our own conscience. We will be seen for who we truly are. And when justice seems elusive in this world, we keep fighting for it as we hold out hope for that day when we will be able to say, at last, justice. And at last, justice, all because of Jesus. Don't you imagine that in front of that throne there's going to be a lot of repentance? A lot of people needing to make amends? Maybe some of us needing to make amends? Needing to ask others for their forgiveness? needing to show gratitude for unknown kindnesses, kindnesses that had not yet come to light. No shadows to hide in before the great and glowing throne. And now we come to one of the most thrilling verses followed up by one of the most sobering verses in the whole Bible. Verse 14. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So again, one of the most thrilling and one of the most sobering verses of the Bible put back to back. Up until this point, no decisions have been made. Up until this point, what's happened is a bunch of books have been opened up. The deeds of everybody, you and me and everybody, both for good and for bad, have come to light "...all of humanity has given an account to our Creator for the ways we have lived our lives, what we've done and not done, the wrongs have been righted, and at last there is full and final justice." Now, Jesus as the judge is ready to make some decisions. His first decision is thrilling. His first decision is to destroy death. To throw death into a burning lake. This is one of those moments that you and I can truly wait for, The death of death. The moment when Jesus the judge will throw the book at death, when he will tell death that it has been tried and found wanting. I hope he gives us a few moments to dance on death's grave. Then comes a really sobering sentence. The really sobering sentence is that anyone whose name was not found in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire which is the second death, not just a physical death, but final separation from God. Now, the truth is, some of us grew up in churches where this is the only verse of the Bible that ever got preached on. I don't want to make the opposite error of having a church where we act like this verse ain't in the Bible. And the truth is, I'm not heartbroken to think this could happen to somebody like Hitler or some of the leaders of the Third Reich, or Stalin, or some of those Roman emperors whose names I can't remember. But much beyond that, this is a sobering passage. That some people will be so so sold out to lives of rebelling against God, even if those aren't the words they use, rebelling against God, they will experience a second death. I think part of the purpose of this verse is to keep that fire in our bellies. That what we do as a church family, what we do as Christians, it really matters. Our work to care for the physical needs of people is important. In fact, Jesus commands us to do it. And the work we have to do spiritually, our spiritual mission is equally crucial. People need to hear about the hope of Jesus. People need to hear about the offer of Jesus to reconcile each of us to God, to make us right with God, to include our names in the Lamb's book of life. This stuff really matters. And if you look at how the early church spread, if you look at how the Christian faith grew in those early centuries, don't you imagine that part of what John's vision, John's revelation did, is that it lit a fire, pardon the pun, it lit a fire under some people. I don't want folks to go to a second death. The Bible, in fact, says Jesus doesn't want folks to go to a second death. And yet Jesus is willing to give people what we truly desire and have sought in this life. And for some people, unfortunately, that is to have nothing to do with our Father who is in heaven. But my last thought on this, at least today, I'm sure I'll have other thoughts another day. My last thought on this today would at least be to say this passage and that verse is not designed to paralyze you in fear. What it's designed to do is ask the question we need to keep asking ourselves Do I trust Jesus? Do I trust Jesus? Because who's the judge? Who holds the pen? Who authors the book of life? Who alone is rightly able to know and judge every human heart in all of its complexities? Who alone is full of grace and truth? I'm not the judge. Our church is not the judge. Our denomination is not the judge. The theologically astute websites I like are not the judge. Jesus is the judge. Only Jesus is the judge. And again, not judge in the bad sense, judge in the call people to account for their lives. Give people what they've truly wanted. Jesus alone is left with the crucial, the complex, the sobering responsibility to judge the living and the dead. To call the living and the dead to account for our lives. To interpret what's in the book and to author the book of life. And then this is where we pick up next week. Because at this point, what's left is the great and glowing throne and those whose names were written in the book of life. And what happens is the radiance of the throne begins to zoom back and light up the world around it. And the scripture says, this is what we see. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. I can't even imagine what that's going to be. But I hope I catch your eye when we see it together. Make your plans now. So let me ask you to reflect on this question as I sort of wrap up this week. And we'll pick up there at the new heavens and the new earth next week. How might you this Advent, these weeks leading up to Christmas, this Christmas season, how might you both receive and give the soul-satisfying hope found in Jesus? How might you receive and give the soul-satisfying hope found in Jesus? So, India is our three-year-old. And one of her favorite episodes of Sesame Street right now is called Julia's Haircut. In the episode, Julia gets a haircut. But before the haircut, uh, Elmo and Abby try to explain to Julia all that's going to happen in the haircut so that she'll be more prepared. And we like that Indy likes this show because we hope it's preparing her for when she'll go get her first haircut. It may not take all of the scariness away, but at least she will know what's coming. Same thing with our passage for this morning. I don't know if I can eliminate every last bit of scariness from something that's called the final judgment. But, by God's grace, we have an idea of what's coming. It's like he gave us the questions to the final before the final. So that instead of panicking... We can give our best attention to what matters most. Instead of panicking, you and I can give our best attention to what matters most. Things like deciding if I really believe this stuff. Is Jesus trustworthy and true? Should I accept his invitation to be reconciled to God, to be listed in the book of life? How do I live out that good news? How do I respectfully share that good news with others? How do I invite others to come and see? How can I live a life that honors God or that more honors God than the life I live right now? How can I live a life that loves my neighbors or at least loves my neighbors more than I do right now? How can I live a life of of integrity, of doing the right thing, of justice now, not simply later. The invitation of this passage, both in its fine parts and in its more sobering parts, is an invitation to come and trust Jesus. So that when you see Him face to face, you don't say a bad word under your breath, but instead it is the reunion of old friends. It is the moment you've been waiting for. It is a beautiful reunion because you know and trust the judge long before you stood before the judge's bench. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, a chance to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer. Lord, I thank you for each person online, each person in the field today. I don't know everything that everybody's going through, but you do. And in your grace, in your wisdom, you have brought us all to this moment. Lord, as we celebrate that you came on that first Christmas may we also celebrate that you're coming again. As we celebrate that the shepherd saw you face to face, may we too celebrate that one day we will see you face to face. And Lord, may we live lives now in light of what the end of the book says. Lord, for some of us, we realize our most fitting response is to surrender, to give up trying to live life our own way and to live life your way, to open up our lives to you, to follow this lamb that was slain, to be part of your countercultural army, loving and serving the world. Abandoning the rebellion against you, and instead living in a right relationship with you. So Lord, some of us, as we walk away from this time, our deepest prayer is you asking you to receive our surrender, to write our names in the book of life, and to guide us every step of the way, from here and forevermore. We make that prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand. Let's worship together.